0: If you have a copy of the scriptures, turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 14. We're looking this morning at verses 1 to 21. All right, this is Matthew 14, verses 1 to 21. This is God's word for you, his people, this morning. Listen to this. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his, brother's, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, He commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, They followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here. And two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men. Besides, women and children. This is God's word for us this morning. What we have here is a story of two banquets. The first banquet is Herod's banquet. We see in verses 1 and 2 a little bit of the background of this banquet. We are talking here about Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, Now, it's a little confusing when you read through the Gospels and Acts because there's like six different guys who get called Herod. Uh, This is not the Herod who sought to kill Jesus when he was a baby. This is one of his sons. That Herod is also called Herod the Great. Uh, This Herod is called Herod the Tetrarch, and Tetrarch means quarter king. Uh, And what happened was, Herod had three sons. His oldest son, Archelaus, got half of his kingdom. And his younger two sons, Philip and Antipas, uh, also got a quarter each of the kingdom. So this is Herod Antipas, uh, one of the sons of Herod the Great, uh, who is called the Tetrarch in the New Testament, which means he's a quarter king. Uh, He reigns over a quarter of the territory of his father's kingdom. So Herod the Tetrarch, who is governing in Galilee, where Jesus is living at this time, hears about Jesus. He hears about the things Jesus has been doing, he hears about the things Jesus has been teaching, and he wonders if John the Baptist has been resurrected, because people thought John was a prophet. Now, we haven't seen yet in the New Testament or in the Gospels that John is dead, and in fact, what happens here after verse 2 is we get a flashback. We learn about how it is that John the Baptist died verses 3 to 5 tell us. But to understand fully what's happened here, you have to know a little bit about Herod the Tetrarch. And let's just say this is not a great guy. Herod the Tetrarch fell in love with his brother's wife, a woman named Herodias. And Herodias fell in love with him. They had an affair together. They both divorced their respective spouses and they got married to one another. And John the Baptist, as a prophet speaking with the authority of God, was proclaiming this is not pleasing to the Lord. Herod did not like that and his wife did not like that. His new wife did not like that. And so Herod put John the Baptist in jail. Uh, largely for his wife, largely at her prompting. He wants to kill John the Baptist. He wants to make a real show of his own authority, but the other problem of Herod the Tetrarch is that he is a coward. And so Herod the Tetrarch imprisons John, but is not willing to kill him for he fears the people. But the story continues. In verses 6 to 11, we see that Herod has a birthday party. And his stepdaughter dances for him, dances for the entire company. At this point, she was probably 12 to 14 years old. And the text tells us that her dancing pleased Herod. This is gross. This is not good or righteous or holy. This was not a tap dance. This was not appropriate. Herod is pleased by her dancing and he promises her whatever she wants. And she goes to her mom and says, mom, what should I ask for? And mom sees her chance. Herodias says, bring me John the Baptist's head on a plate. Herod regrets immediately the rash promise he made to this 12-year-old girl. But Herod, being a coward, also doesn't want to lose face in front of everyone at his birthday party. So in order to protect his ego and his pride, he goes and murders John the Baptist. He sins for John the Baptist's head on a plate. And so his servants go, behead John the Baptist in the prison, and bring his head to this 12-year-old girl at Herod's birthday party on a plate. And the girl takes it to her mother. Verse 12 tells us that after this, John the Baptist's disciples collect his body and bury it. And then they go and tell Jesus what has happened. Friends, there is a lot of darkness here. There is a lot of evil and a lot of sin here. And in fact, I think Herod's banquet teaches us something about the nature of sin. Sometimes we're tempted to think that sin is kind of naughty fun. It's like something fun that God, for whatever reason, has chosen to withhold or tell us that we are not allowed to do it. But what I want you to see here is that that is not the case. Sin has only the capacity to corrupt and to corrode and to destroy and to live in sin. To ignore what you know is sinful and to live in sin more and more requires greater and greater evil and destruction. You saw it in the very story of Herod's marriage. What started with lust became adultery, became murder. Herod, to live in sin, had to keep getting worse and worse. Augustine, the great pastor in North Africa in the early church one time said that the punishment for sin is sin. And by that what he means is that the punishment for sin is having to live in this destructive way that is corroding your soul, that is melting your heart like a hot chocolate heart. We see this in the New Testament as well. The Scripture tells us that this is what sin does. Look at James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. James says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin brings forth death. That is ultimately all it can only do. Sin brings forth death. On November 20th, in the year 1980, uh, some guys working for Texaco were doing some exploratory drilling uh, in a lake in Louisiana. The lake is called Lake Pinure. It's a small lake, it was about 10 feet deep at the deepest, and it was mainly used for fishing and recreational boating. Lake Pinure, though, had a unique geological feature, and that is underneath it, there was what geologists call a salt dome, which is where geological forces had pressed together and made a large deposit of salt. And so one of the things that would happen in the area is there was a salt mine that was underneath the lake. Our good friends on the drilling rig were being very careful, uh, but they noticed that something funny happened as their drilling rig, which is 150 feet tall, started shaking as they were drilling exploratory holes in the lake. Suddenly, this 150-foot drilling rig disappeared in a 10-foot deep lake. What had happened was, as careful as these guys were trying to be, they had just punched a 14-inch hole in the top of a salt mine. And if you know anything about salt, it dissolves in water. They got back to shore as the 55 miners in the salt mine realized something horrible was happening because salt and water, not a good combination. These guys run out. Nobody dies in this story. But what happened next is amazing to think about. Lake Pinure turned in to the largest whirlpool in recorded history. 11 barges went down in this whirlpool and only two came back up. No idea where these barges went. The entire lake drained into this salt mine. So powerful was the whirlpool that a canal that was normally an outflow from the lake reversed its flow and became temporarily the largest waterfall in the state of Louisiana at 165 feet. At the end of the day, after everything kind of rebalanced, Lake Penure was no longer 10 feet deep. It was now a 250 foot deep saltwater lake. Friends, that's a long story about mining, a long story about salt and water. And what I want you to see is that sin is like drilling a hole in the top of a salt mine in a lake. Sin corrodes. Sin destroys. Sin has only the capacity to diminish our life. Sin has only the capacity to make us not flourish. In fact, to make us destruct. You see it in Herod's story. You see it in this saltwater lake now in Louisiana. But this is why we must take sin seriously. Sin is never just one bad thing we do. Sin destroys. And if we don't be on guard against sin, if we don't turn from sin in our lives, we are embracing something that will only bring death. As individuals seeking to follow Christ, as a church seeking to follow Christ together, we have to care about sin because sin is ultimately only destructive. It is only the capacity to destroy. That's Herod's banquet. It's a banquet of death where Herod's sinful love of self ends up taking the life of another. But in this passage, we have a second banquet. And that second banquet picks up in verse 13. Jesus learns of John the Baptist's death. And he withdraws by a boat by himself to go to a desolate place. Jesus wants to be alone because he's sad. Because he's grieving The death not only of a prophet, but of a family member. Jesus loved John the Baptist. And friends, it's even here helpful to realize Jesus knows what it is to lose a friend. Jesus knows what it is to lose a loved one. In fact, there is no hardship we experience in this life about which Jesus cannot also say, I know. I know, me too. Jesus is sad. Jesus is grieving. Jesus wants to be alone, but the crowds find him. The crowds not only find him, they want him. And so Jesus knows again what it's like to be sad and tired and then to have someone expect or want something of you. Parents, Jesus sees you. Verse 14 says that Jesus sees the crowds. The sad and tired Jesus sees the crowds and has compassion on them. In Mark's account of this same story in chapter 6, he says he saw them and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so the sad and tired Jesus, who has compassion on these sinners, wades back into the sea of human brokenness. And even though he's sad, even though he's tired, even though he wants to be alone, he heals their sick. In Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verse 10, it tells us that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. This was perhaps a a time of suffering in his own life. He's sad, he's tired, he's grieving, and yet has to care for these crowds. If Herod's banquet teaches us something about the nature of sin, then Christ's banquet teaches us something about the nature of sanctification. It teaches us something about the nature of growing in grace, of walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Several years ago, it's fortunately been several years now that I can uh, relay this story. I heard the sound in the middle of the night that every parent dreads, and that is the sound of crying and then coughing and then splashing. You guys know that, yep, yep, the groan is correct. It was the sound of a child waking up in the middle of the night sick. It was terrible. It was 2 a.m., 3 a.m., it had probably been a week. You know, it was, it, it was already been hard. And then I'm having to go into a bedroom with my wife and, and clean up a child. I just wanted to sleep. We all just wanted to sleep. And I was sitting there and I was thinking as I'm pulling clothes off that are moist, I mean, it's awful. And I think God's grace just like a a two-by-four across the back of my head, made me realize in that moment, that was probably the thing I have done in my life that is most like what Jesus has done for me. Jesus was exhausted here. Jesus is tired and sad and wants nothing to do with other people. He wants ten minutes to himself to collect himself. And people need him. And Jesus, when he is tired and when he is sad, he goes with compassion and heals sick people. I keep hoping that God's plan for me growing in grace is going to involve a mountain cabin and a warm cup of coffee and a compelling book. But more often than not, God's plan for my growth in grace looks like kids throwing up at 3 a.m., Just like Jesus was made perfect through suffering, so we too are being conformed to his image. And the fact that Jesus has compassion on these crowds, given what he's going through personally and emotionally and relationally, shows us something beautiful. The the gospel is in that compassion. And so Jesus heals the sick who have come to him. But verses 15 to 18 says, evening comes. So he's been doing this now for presumably hours. And the disciples come to Jesus and say, hey man, the day is over and we are in the middle of nowhere. Send these people away so they can buy food in the villages. And Jesus says back to them, the crowds don't need to leave, you give them something to eat. And the disciples are like, man, we've got nothing. Nothing. We barely have enough to feed ourselves. We have five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus said, we'll bring those here. We'll see what we can do with them. You see, Jesus knows that the true need of the crowd is not food. They need him. But Jesus is also not oblivious to our and their physical needs. The disciples have no idea what is coming, though. Listen to one commentator talk about this moment before Jesus has done this thing. He says this, he says, The disciples think that they have nothing here except these seven items. But they are counting only the realities that impress them, not the reality that should impress them most. Disciples should always count to eight. Verse 19 says, Jesus has the crowds sit on the grass. That's kind of a funny, just random detail to get thrown into the story, isn't it? I mean, the whole story would work without that. Why does, it go, why does Matthew go out of his way to tell us that Jesus had these people sit on the grass before he serves them? I think potentially Matthew is evoking for us Psalm 23 which we read already in our Old Testament reading, that he, that is the Lord who is my shepherd, makes me lie down in green pastures. Here Jesus, as the shepherd of these people, who Marcus said had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, Jesus, the good shepherd, makes these people to lie down in green pastures. And then he takes the bread and the loaves and he blesses them and he breaks them, and he gives them to the people. Eugene Peterson says that that is what Jesus always does with his disciples. He says there are five or six times in the gospel account where takes, blesses, breaks, and gives all occur in a series like this. And he says this is what Jesus is always doing in his people. It's what Jesus is doing with us. It's what Jesus is doing with our work Jesus takes what we bring, he blesses it, he breaks it, and then he gives it to others in blessing. It's what Jesus is doing with us even this morning. And as Jesus breaks these five loaves and two fish, he begins feeding the crowds. And what we learn is the whole crowd eats and is satisfied, which means they didn't just get a bite, they were full And left over at the end of this is 12 basketfuls of bread and fish. Jesus took what the disciples brought and made it more than it was. And Jesus always does that in us. He takes what we bring and makes it more than it was. He fed 5,000 men, and then Matthew adds, plus the women and children. This is a huge crowd could be 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 people on five loaves and two fish. If Herod's banquet teaches us about the nature of sin, Christ's banquet teaches us about the gospel. You see, Herod's banquet takes place in the halls of power. But Christ's banquet takes place in a desolate area. Herod's banquet is primarily about himself. Christ's banquet is primarily about others. Herod's banquet is a banquet of pride and lust, but Christ's is a banquet of compassion. Herod's banquet is a place where he takes. Christ's banquet is a place where he gives. And friends, the good news for us this morning is that the trajectory set at this banquet is the trajectory Christ follows throughout his entire earthly ministry. And by that I mean Jesus always looks upon crowds of needy sinners and has compassion on them. No matter what the cost is to him. And nowhere is that more clear in the gospel than the cross where his love and compassion for sinners cost him everything. And because of the cross, Jesus is always now taking and blessing and breaking and giving us in service to other people. Because of the cross, our deepest longings are satisfied. Because of the cross, Psalm 23 is not just a nice thought. Psalm 23 is the truest thing about your life. Friends, the Lord Is your shepherd. You shall not want. He makes you lie down in green pastures. He leads you besides still waters. He restores your soul. He leads you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though you will walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you need fear no evil, for God is with you. His rod. And his staff, they comfort you. He prepares a table before you in the presence of your enemies. He anoints your head with oil. Your cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. And you shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that we can so often be complacent about our sin. Father, we fail to recognize the destructiveness of it. We embrace it because we think it feels good or we think it will bring us happiness. But Father, that is a lie. And we thank you that here we are reminded again of sin's destruction of the fact that sin never leads us to life and flourishing, but only to death and diminishment. But Father, we thank you that in the midst of that, we are reminded again of your goodness and your grace for us in Christ. We thank you that we are reminded in his banquet of the heart of the gospel, that Christ is our good shepherd. That he makes us lie down in green pastures, And that even in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the hardship, Jesus is at work in us, shaping us, making us more and more like him. Father, give us confidence, give us hope, give us peace in the midst of the hard things in our lives. Be at work in them. Make us more and more like Jesus. Father, even now as we come to your table, we pray that you would be at work here And that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose to shape us and anchor us in the gospel. That we would be a church that not only talks about the gospel, but lives it and experiences it week after week after week. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.